We know from what we call the upper room discourse, John 14 and following, the disciples, they were greatly challenged at the thought of Christ leaving them. Let not your hearts be troubled. That was a tremendous burden. So what happens that you get to verse number 52, and as he leaves, they return with great joy. The contrast is really very, very stark. They were in turmoil. They were in anxiety in John 14 through 16. They need to know that the peace of Christ would come upon them. My peace I give unto you. Oh yes, they were given the encouragement of the comforter coming. Many things were given by Christ to settle their hearts. I believe they heard his prayer of John 17. They understood that Christ was praying for them and those things helped. But yet still, when it came to the point that he died, they scattered, they fled, they hid in a room, they locked the doors. All those things happened, indicating they still weren't quite settled in their minds. Fearful. In turmoil. And yet, Again, we come to Luke 24 and they continue in the temple and they're praising and blessing God. Now, I'm not suggesting for a second that only one thing contributes to the change. Undoubtedly, they were knowing the grace of God in time of need. Never forget that. Their need was now. In John 14, it's in front of them, but when the need comes, they're given God's grace. And they're able to endure in times of need. And remember, dear child of God, God gives us grace in time of need. But there are certainly things that contribute to this change. Oh yes, the teaching of John 14 through 16, the prayer of John 17, all of those things helped. But I'm convinced in my mind that a major part of their encouragement was the sight they saw on that hill in Bethany. What they saw with their eyes was used by God to so strengthen their minds that as he ascends and leaves them, they worship him and return with great joy. The verbs that are referred to here, well, worshiping the verb, and of course, joy, the description of that, but you have this sense of worship, of course, denoting again that they, as they see him leave, they are convinced yet again that the one who leaves is none other than Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Son of God. They're worshiping one who is indeed the most holy Lord God. But joy is also described. They return with great joy. Now, there are several verses that point in this direction, but I love Habakkuk chapter 3. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. And it indicates, of course, that joy is spiritual grace. It's worked in us by the Spirit of God. But it has this key connection with faith. We believe that God is the God of our salvation. And alongside that faith comes the grace of joy. And we rejoice in the God of our salvation. And so again, the sight that they see here, they recognize Jesus is Lord and God's. But I believe they also recognize afresh and anew that he is Christ. That is what the New Testament teaches us regarding the profession of faith. 
It is that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so they worship the Son of God, and they're also convinced in their mind that He is the Christ, the Messiah. And that provokes the fact that not only is Jesus the Lord God, He is the Lord God for them. He is Christ for them. Not just Christ, but Christ on their behalf. He is the God of their salvation, and they rejoice in that. And so as we look at this scene, and we look at it in textual form, we see it written for us and described for us, we are reading words that point us again in the direction of the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. We've come to this theme so many times, and in many ways it serves very helpfully as a summary of the entire gospel. It's yet another reminder that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the anointed, the promised Christ. And so I simply want to turn your attention to that today as we consider the ascension of the Messiah and how he ascends as the conquering king, as the compassionate high priest, and as the continuing prophet. He is prophet, priest, and king as the Messiah, and we're now seeing him ascending as the exalted Messiah, prophet, priest, and king. So let's begin with him as king. You see, what do they see when they watch him ascend? Verse 51 tells us, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. Now, it's this term, carried up, that provokes some thought. It's in the passive. It has the idea of something being done to our Lord. This action, he himself is being carried up into heaven. Mark tells us he was received up. But turn across to Acts because, of course, Acts is Luke's gospel, part two. And in the book of Acts, we have the words again of Luke. As he describes this, Acts chapter 1, verse number 9, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up. Again, this active term used for Christ being taken up. And it says then in verse number 9, And a cloud received him out of their sight. So what do we learn in this? See, too often we see this in a, in a, very, in a very natural, in, in a very limited sense. We have the concept that it must have been a cloudy day. And simply the Lord ascends from this world up into the cloudy stratosphere, and we see the Lord leaving their sight as the clouds take Him up in that sense. The language that's used is way, way too active for such a limited sense. The clouds are taking him up. And of course, the cloud in Jewish thinking is much more significant from that that simply brings rain. What you're seeing here, I believe, is the cloud as the manifestation of the special presence of God. So you go back to Exodus chapter 40. And we are reminded, of course, in Exodus chapter 40, in the verse number 34, after the tabernacle is constructed, then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The cloud is again that visible symbol that represented the very presence of God. 
You've got the same when they go on their journeys. The rest of that chapter, Exodus chapter 40. It is the cloud of the Lord upon the tabernacle. Note the term, verse 38. It is the cloud of the Lord. It's referred to as the Shekinah glory. The cloud of God's presence. The cloud of God's glory. You get the same reference, of course, in the cloud as it comes upon the temple that is constructed in 1 Kings chapter 8. The Shekinah glory of the tabernacle manifests as a cloud, and that's what you're seeing here in Luke's gospel, in Acts chapter 1. You're seeing that the Lord is received up into the presence of God. And so in your outline, I've given you two very simple thoughts regarding this receiving up. It is a triumphant procession indicating a welcome return. This language is of Christ's triumphant procession into glory. One writer says this, A cloud is prepared as a royal chariot to carry up the king of glory to his princely pavilion. I don't have such a way of words. What a picture that is. The cloud that is this royal chariot carrying up our Christ to heaven itself. And of course, as this triumphant procession proceeds, the Father then gladly receives the Son who has fully kept the covenant. Remember the hymn or the confession of 1 Timothy chapter 3, how that part of Christ's worship indicates he was received up into glory. You see how that fits in now? You have the kind of glory of God, if you like, descending from heaven, meeting Christ as he ascends, and he's taken up by the cloud as a chariot, taking him into the very presence of his Father. It's a wonderful picture, a wonderful scene. But it is the scene of a king ascending. It is a royal chariot. And I say that because of the language that's used in the book of Psalms, particularly regarding this event. Turn back to the Psalm 24. We sang it together. The Psalm 24. And you have what is the description of a king coming in. I said to you already in our comments on this hymn, we sang the hymn, Who hath clean hands and a pure heart? Well, let me put it this way. Who hath cleaner hands than Christ? Or a pure heart than Christ? No one has cleaner hands or a pure heart. He has hands that are clean and a heart that is pure in a manner that is like nothing else. Because this is the very purity of deity with the perfect sinless obedience of humanity. It's a wonderful aspect in which Christ cannot help ascending into the hill of God. He must go into the hill because of the cleanness of his hands and the pureness of his heart. And yet the languages of a king, verse number 7, lift up your heads, O ye gates. It is language that we are not familiar with, but it has the idea of the gates of the city being lifted up and opened up to receive the glory of the conquering king. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He is the king of glory, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Note the thought here. Remember who we're seeing? We are seeing Christ. And as he leaves his disciples, 
he lifts up his hands. And what do they see in those hands? They see the scars of battle. They see the nail prints. They see the triumph of the king as he conquered in that day and won the victory with such triumph. He made a show of principalities and powers as our sins are nailed upon him on the cross. And they see the symbols of that in the hands as he leaves and blesses them. And they are seeing then the Shekinah glory of God comes down. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. How could they not worship him? They are seeing the manifestation of the glory of God as the King of glory ascends in triumph. It is a king. Because, of course, we know we go back so often to Philippians chapter 2. He's obedient to death, the death of the cross. His hands bear the symbol of that. And as his hands, they show that he died upon the cross. So, therefore, God hath also highly exalted him and prepared the Shekinah glory to come down and receive him, to take him up, to carry him up into glory. As you turn across to another psalm, the Psalm 68, this psalm that is referred to in Ephesians chapter 4. We'll go to Ephesians 4 in a moment or two. But in Psalm 68, just notice this, verse number 17. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gift for men. Yeah, there's the words that Paul uses to describe the ascension of Christ and the connection, the chariots of God. As Christ ascends on high, the King of glory enters heaven in glory as the triumphant conquering King. That is the great triumphant note of the gospel. Who is this man, Jesus? Well, he came to preach the kingdom. We saw that. The kingdom among you. The kingdom within you. And now we see the king in his glory going to his rightful place at the right hand of God upon the throne of David. More of that tonight. But by way of application in this regard, we must glean the encouragement that it is a king who ascends. In, in our book club, we've been reading quite a bit of John Flavel, or Flavel, depends how you want to say his name, uh, the English Puritan. He says this, Did Christ ascend so triumphantly, leading captivity captive? The answer, of course, being yes, he did. And then he says this, How little reason then have believers to fear their conquered enemies? Sin, Satan, and every enemy were in that day led away in triumph, dragged at Christ's chariot wheels, brought after him as it were in chains. The king that has conquered, we have no need to fear our enemies. That's encouraging. His work is done, finished, he ascends in victory. Oh yes, that will provoke joy and worship. And it broke joy in the very thought that our enemies cannot triumph over us because Christ has triumphed over them. He's won the victory. Therefore, why do we fear that we'll lose? We think of even Satan in his most fiercest manner, attacking the people of God continually. We think of the spiritual warfare we face. Satan sows the seeds of deception. False doctrines abound. 
He sows the manners of a division as churches rent asunder. You think of the doubts he sows in the minds of the saints, the accuser of the brethren. We think of the temptations that depart from the things of God. We think of all of these enemies. And dear believer, you can feel lost. How will I withstand all the deception of this age? How can I withstand the temptation to sin and depart and turn away? How can I withstand the, the fearful doubts that grip me day by day and before God, and yet I, I can't lift my voice in prayer? I'm so conscious of my unworthiness. All of these things, they come upon us. Look up. Look up and see Christ. See the one who leaves this world and goes to the Father's right hand as a conquering king. Remember, remember the one in the midst of the throne, Revelation 7, the lamb that was slain. Remember Christ is there in glory as the conquering king. He's got the scroll. He unloses the seals thereof. And history continues for his glory, not for Satan's success. Christ is our conquering king, and he ascends as such. Secondly, he ascends as a compassionate high priest. Back to Luke 24, and you'll see the words that are used here. And it came to pass while he blessed them. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord causes face to shine upon thee. Lift up the light of his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Number six, who, who is to offer that blessing? None other than the high priest. And so we're seeing the Lord with his hands outstretched, I believed, and he's departing from them and he's blessing them. He's praying for them. He's occupying his role as the high priest. And note what it says. Verse 50, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them. So at no point did they see the blessing end. Didn't finish. He continued to bless them until he's out of their sights. They see him continuing to bless them all the way into glory. And their child of God, he hasn't stopped. He hasn't stopped blessing his people. He's still blessing us and praying for us that God's face would shine upon us and grant us peace. You see, we are seeing our Lord following his resurrection. And yet we're being encouraged to note in Luke's gospel very clearly. We've seen it already. We must see that this man who ascends is a true man. We've been encouraged several times to notice the nature of his humanity his real human hands that could be touched and handled. We've noticed him. We've recognized him actually eating and taking in food. We've read of him speaking. All of the vocal apparatus of a real human. Speaking, eating, a man that can be handled and touched. You see, please turn to Ephesians chapter 4 now. I referred to Ephesians chapter 4 regarding the Lord's ascension. In Ephesians chapter 4, the quotation is of Psalm 68. And it says there, when you go from verse number 8, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. 
And then you have this verse 9. He ascended. He also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. Don't get confused with that. It's simply a description of incarnation. He came in human form. And then note verse 10. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And the point is, he is the same. He left and took on a humanity, and as the same, he ascends up. The one that descended, it's the same that ascended, it's the same Lord of glory, but now with a perfect humanity. You get a similar language in Acts chapter 3. Listen to this. He shall send Jesus Christ which before is preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive. Just simply pointing out, it is Jesus whom the heaven must receive. His human name given to him at his birth, that is the name, and that's the one, it is Jesus who ascends into heaven. The Lord is ever eternally the God-man. Our shorter catechism, the question 21 answers the question regarding the Lord, so Lord, the Redeemer of God's elect, the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person. Doesn't end there, does it, kids? Two natures, one person, forever. Forever. To never end always be the God-man in the glory. You see, that's so encouraging. I turn you to Hebrews chapter 2. I make no apology for repeating these things time and time again. They're so fundamental. They are so important. And by the way, if some of you are kind of wondering, this sounds familiar. I preached a lot of this sermon when I first came here in 2016. I preached the ascension of Christ. So you're kind of like, this sounds familiar. And those in Orlando, they're even more confused because I preached it recently in Orlando. Right, this is a different sermon, okay, different sermon. But the substance is the same. So you're kind of going there, this sounds familiar. That's why. And I have no embarrassment of saying the same things again. Because what you have here in Hebrews chapter 2 is something that we must hold on to tenaciously. Verse 17. Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Remember, he leaves, he blesses them. He's blessing them as the high priest. And he makes reconciliation for the sins of the people. Verse 18. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. His humanity leads to the conclusion that he is able to strengthen us in our trials, in our troubles. He is able to succor us. So chapter 4 and the verse 15, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tender like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, he who was touched with sorrow in his humanity is the one in that humanity that is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. If we suffer pain, he knows it. Grief, he wept at the grave. Rejection, he's forsaken of his friends, mistreated. He knows all about it. He knows the trials that are common to man as our compassionate high priest who now ministers grace to our hearts. 
They didn't see him stopping blessing them. He continues to bless us now. In the power of an endless life, Hebrews chapter 7, verse number 25. Wherefore, he is able. Remember chapter 2? He is able to succor. Now chapter 7, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Christ's finished work was the cross. His unfinished work is his continual intercession on our behalf. Are you struggling in your walk with God today? Do you doubt your security in Christ? Do you question, will you make it? Not to the end of the week, but to the end of the day. I don't know where you all are, but I know where I've been. And there are times of great conflict and battle in our Christian experience. And the Bible very clearly ties together the thought of Christ's intercession with our security. You get it in Romans 8. He makes intercession for us. In the very next text, nothing shall separate you from the love of Christ. The fact of his praying for us is fundamental to our eternal security. Hence, he can save to the uttermost. You see, what do you need to receive help today? Spiritual help. What, what must be true? Well, you think of this in the, in the human level. You need the one who is to help you have the knowledge of your need. Knowledge. That's important, isn't that? Isn't that itself a comfort sometimes? You know, just somebody coming alongside you and simply saying to you, I know you're suffering. I know about you right now. Even that knowledge itself brings some degree of comfort. Job 23. The Lord knoweth the way that we take. The Lord of glory as the God-man knows us intimately. So knowledge is one thing. Compassion, that takes it another level. Because someone can know about our needs and be completely unmoved. But Christ is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows about us and he understands the needs and he feels for us. In the very heart of the God-man, in his humanity, he feels for us. That is not an inappropriate reference. You think how many times in the Gospels he was moved with compassion. He saw them, sheep without a shepherd. He saw them in their need. He saw the impact of sin in sickness and in grief. As people were weeping, he felt them. He felt compassion for them. Why has that ended in your mind? There's no reason for you to suspect that he's less compassionate now than he was then. The same Jesus, he who descended, the same ascended, the same compassionate Christ. So he knows about us. He's compassionate about us in our need. But even beyond that, he's got the ability and the authority to provide grace. I may know about your need. I may even feel compassion for your need. But I may be completely unable to help you in your need. Not Christ. No deficiencies in Christ. No inability. No. He may not help you in the way that you feel is right. 
You may have your own mind and think, well, I need this and I need that and I need the other thing. This is how Christ has helped me. But you know what's even more comforting than all this? The Lord knows exactly what help you need in the right portions at the right time. He perfectly tailors His grace to help you in your time of need that it is impossible for you, dear child of God, to be lost. He is our compassionate high priest. You see, our theology must impact our lives. It's okay being able to read and write a thesis on the high priestly reign of Christ. But you've got to be able to bring it with you to the prayer closet. You've got to be able to bring it with you on your knees. And so he is our compassionate high priest. Is it any wonder they return with joy and worship? Thirdly, he ascends as the continuing prophet. You see, clearly an aspect of the ascension and intercession is to pray for the completion of the kingdom. We saw last week that the Spirit of God will be sent to secure success in the Great Commission. We saw that, didn't we? Verse 49, I send the promise of my Father upon you. And the commission continues in the the book of Acts, and we see the extension of the gospel across the nations. But this week, I want you to think about one particular part of that. And that is how this reveals Christ's continuing work as our prophet. The one who teaches us and works in our hearts the things of God. You see, turn again to Acts chapter 1, please. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. The clear implication of that is that Luke is saying that Luke chapter 1, is, or Luke's gospel is just the beginning. And Acts is the continuation. And so we can say with very clear authority that Jesus goes to glory to continue the work of prophets. And although the work will be different in form, he is still very much a prophet to God's people. He is prophet, priest, and king. And so that takes you back to the promise of verse number 49, the promise of my Father, the promise of the Spirit of God, enabling initially the apostles to teach. We see that John 14, John 16, the Spirit comes. He will teach you all things. He will tell you what to say in your testimony. And so initially Christ's prophetic ministry continues through the apostles, whereby they come to write the Scriptures. It's a reminder to us, by the way, if you have any doubts, that Christ's teaching ministry is both evangelistic and edifying. There's a false dichotomy between those things in the minds of many, even in churches. They think, oh, the gospel, it's not about teaching, really. You just tell people, you tell them to come to Christ, you tell them that God loves them and they'll they'll be fine, and you, you don't give them any robust doctrine. You don't explain things. You don't want to overcomplicate things. But Christ's ministry, evangelistically, is a teaching ministry. 
instructing people's minds, seeking to persuade and convince them regarding the truth of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, out of which then comes the application to the sinner's heart. See, Christ's ministry of teaching is evangelistic. And those of you who are involved in evangelism, make sure you commit wholeheartedly to be teaching in your evangelism. But it's also, of course, edifying. In the book of Acts, the epistles, they teach about the organization of the saints in the churches, the edifying of the saints in terms of teaching. All of these things is Christ's continued prophetic ministry. So that even now he continues through the word that he gave as prophet to his people. And as the apostolic doctrines expounded, Christ, as our prophet by his spirit, continues to open our minds to the truth. He is still teaching. So I wish the Lord would teach me. He is teaching you. As the scriptures expounded. That's why it's such a solemn thing to come to the house of God. It doesn't matter who's behind the desk. I certainly have no delusions of grandeur. But I understand and I am wholeheartedly convicted of the truth that when the Bible is taught, Christ is teaching. And therefore, if the word of God is taught and applied properly and correctly, your rebellion against the word of God is not against me, it's against Christ. He is the one who teaches as the word of God has explained it. And so our view of Christ as we see him depart, we see it in text, but as they worship him with great joy, so that must also be our response to this message. We must worship our Savior. And we must be joyful. You see, when we live in this world, we have so many concerns regarding global affairs. This nation, that nation, this nation particularly. He is king. In our seasons of personal affliction, he is your priest. And in ecclesiastical troubles in the church, he is our prophet. So whatever the need is, Christ is the answer. That's not some trite saying. That is profoundly grounded upon the truth that this man Jesus is the Christ, the Lord, the Son of God. Believe in him and have life in his name. Let's bow together in prayer. Almighty God and Father, we thank you again that we see Christ in the Scriptures. And we thank you for his continued work on our behalf. He is indeed the Messiah, conquering King, compassionate High Priest, continuing Prophet. O Lord, may Christ indeed be all of these things for us today and for those who are out of Christ. We pray that they would yearn to have such a relationship with the Saviour. Open their hearts to receive these things. We thank you again for this study. Help us, O Lord, to hide the word of God in our hearts, that we would not sin against thee. And may our eyes always go upward to see Christ, the man of God, 
the Son of God, the Son of Man, and the Lord of glory. We ask these things in His precious name. Amen.